Welcome to the 20th episode of the No Degree Podcast. This is your host, Janaid Iqbal, and today's guest is Joseph Gonzalez, also known as the Movement Detective. Joseph isn't your typical trainer. He isn't the one you go to if you want to get stronger or lose weight to look good for the summer. He is a person when you want to explore training in ways that most don't even know exist. An MIT dropout, Joseph worked his way up from being a typical trainer to being one that was extremely specialized. Listen to how Joseph got to where he is today and was able to set himself apart from other trainers. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash no degree. Every contribution is appreciated. Remember, this show is impossible without you. Let's get this show started. Welcome to another episode of the No Degree Podcast. Today, I have a very special guest, Joseph Gonzalez, and I'll let him do the intro. Hey, Janai. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so my name is Joseph Gonzalez. I am known online as the Movement Detective. And what that means is I am a personal trainer, but I specialize exclusively in postural issues and movement dysfunction with people. So let's say you have constant lower back tension. I'm the guy that's going to help you troubleshoot that issue. But if you're trying to lose weight or have more specific fitness goals, I'm not the guy. I'll send you over to somebody else. Did you ever do any of the fitness stuff? Oh, for sure. Uh, That's where I started out at. Uh, When I first started being a personal trainer, I was working at New York Sports Club up in Harlem. And then I bounced around to a couple of other gyms like Crunch and some boutique spaces in New York City. I did that for about seven and a half years where I was helping people get stronger, get leaner, look better naked, that kind of stuff. Okay, that's fun. Let's take it back. You actually went to MIT. Let's take it back even earlier. What did you sort of want to be when you grew up? Did you sort of envision this? Not this particularly. So I had two main goals or two ideas of what I wanted to be when I was growing up. The first, my earliest memory was some kind of scientist. So I didn't have any context for anything. I always envisioned myself working in some kind of a lab with a white lab coat, maybe with goggles and then a giant telescope. So I didn't know how all of that, like, I don't know why you would need goggles and a lab coat to like look at the stars, but like, that's what I thought a scientist was. And then as I got older, I actually liked the idea of like being a spy or being a secret agent, but I loved the concept of being a sniper, being able to be super precise, like with one bullet, you can influence so much change. Like if you're taking out a general, if you're taking out someone that is really important on the other side of the equation, like how could that destabilize something or how could that insert a catalyst for change? So it was like that precision that's required. And I didn't know too much else about it. Like all I got it was from like video games and stuff like that. But it was either being a scientist or a sniper. Interestingly enough, what I do now, I actually embody a lot of the things from those two objectives. When you went to MIT, what'd you want to be? At that point, what'd you want to be? At that point, I was very disillusioned. Nothing really jumped out at me. I got Towards the end of my high school career, I had a really terrible math teacher in my high school. I actually ended up having him for three years straight so that my lackluster skills in math can be attributed to that. It was a pain coming into his classroom every single day. Like it it was one of those things where like I associated math with this person. And to that extent, I never got above a C in his class. I got bumped up to the advanced math course in senior year. So that was an elective for me, but I only got there because people knew I was smart and they assumed that I had a higher average in math. Like it was a very small knit community. So all the teachers knew all the students and they were like, oh, you want to do the advanced physics course because I love physics. And they said, you need to do advanced math if you want to go take that physics class. And so I just asked the teacher who was running it. She's like, yeah, sure, whatever. I got my first test back from her and I got like an A, an A minus or an A, A or A minus. 
And then I told her, wow, this is the first thing above 70 that I've gotten in this high school. And then she said, what, what was your average before? I told her and she said, you weren't supposed to get into this class. And it's like, who was your math teacher? And I said, I had Mr. Kirk for three straight years. And I'll never forget her reaction. She was like, oh, it was like understanding and saying, damn, that sucks. Because <laughs> she knew exactly what kind of teacher he was. That's how I got really into physics. And I said, well, I, you know, if you study physics, you can't make a lot of money. And maybe I could go learn mechanical engineering because that's just like applied physics. That's how I was thinking about it in high school. So my high school would send people to liberal arts colleges. So Princeton, Harvard, Yale, things like that, right? It didn't send too many people to engineering schools. It's just not the breeding ground for that. But in my year, I was the second person to apply and I got in. So it was a toss up then between going to MIT for mechanical engineering and Cooper Union for mechanical engineering. But when I got there, I was very disillusioned because none of the stuff that I was studying was really appealing to me. It was really just boring. It was either too theoretical or too hands-on. Nothing really resonated with me. And I said, well, I'm here now. I can't just stop. So nothing really jumped out at me. Nothing interested me. It was all just, I was just hanging on and surviving for the most part. There were little things that really did pique my interest. So the robot competition my junior year and my freshman year, we were tasked with figuring out how an engine worked. So we got a lawnmower engine, like the ones that you ride. And we got to take it apart, figure out what the pieces were that were working together and put it back together. So there was no math in that one. It was just tinkering, which I really loved. When did you decide to drop out? Well, that was at the end of my junior year. I think it was we were doing a thermodynamics course. This was legendary for us because this one year, the year after, they completely revamped the program. They, they changed how everything was going to be set up. I remember that the number was something insane, like 30 to 40% of the people just did not pass that class. And we were all brought into the dean's office, the dean for mechanical engineering, and they would sit us down. And I remember it was, I think it was Slocum. It was Professor Slocum that where I sat down and he kind of just looked at you. And this meeting was just him in his big office. It was just you and him. He'd sit you down and he would like be rifling through some papers. And then he would look up and he said, so do you still want to go to school here? And I said, yeah. And it's like, all right, cool. Pick a new major. And then that was the end of it. That was the end of the meeting. So I still sat, I sat there waiting for more of, of, of a response. And then he looked up and he was like, well, what are you still doing here? You know, I gave you, I gave you the options. That's, you got to make a choice. So I switched over to management course 15. And that was in the school of finance. I did that, but then my first intro course, the curve, the, the curve for that first test was worse than any curve that we ever had in engineering. So to give you some perspective, like you could get maybe like a 40 out of 100 on a on an engineering test, and that could be like a B, right? Just because of the way it's curved. In my first test at Sloan, I think I got a, I forget what it was on the first test, but it was like there was there were two main examinations. It was the midterm and the final. Everything else was like homework, which didn't really count for a lot. I remember being so disillusioned that I slept through my midterm. Like I just didn't care. I, this was the first time in my academic career when I was so disillusioned and I said, I don't care. And I slept through my midterm. I got a zero. They said, there's this one problem that's definitely going to be on the final. So if you don't understand anything, just learn this problem. I only studied that problem from then until the end of the year. I got a 13 out of 300 for the final. So wait, so he, so here's the curve. 13 out of 300. It would be safe to say that I didn't understand what the hell was going on. I got a C on the final. And I got a D for the year, so I still passed. That was the worst. Like my engineering classes, none of the course two Mechie engineering classes had that kind of curve. 
So I said, what am I still doing here? Like, what am I really learning in this situation? At that point, it just, the cost of tuition was too high. And I was like, I can't, I can't keep doing this. Like, there's no mechanism that's going to allow me to stay here and not just dig myself into a hole. Cause I remember also like when I would take, I took a semester off like voluntarily cause I was trying to figure stuff out. Like, what am I going to do? How's this going to pan out? And I remember the day that I came back, I just felt so depressed. Like the moment I stepped foot on campus, I felt so depressed. And I'm like, this is not, this is not a good look for me. Like I can't, I can't stay here right now. All of that combined with the financial stressors of it. I said, you know what? Screw this. I'm just going to, I'm going to bounce. And what year was that? Junior or senior? That was 2005, 2006. Junior year going into senior year. When I switched into course 15, I could have wrapped everything up in a year and a half. Like I mapped it all out with my counselor. It was going to suck. I think the last half a year, I was going to stay there for another half a sem- for another semester. And that was all just the PE courses. I was going to have one semester where I was just taking the PE requirements. And I was like, this is terrible. <laughs> like I'm going to have to pay full tuition just to take PE. What were the next steps? So you dropped out. What were your next steps? So I was bouncing around. Like I really looked for anything that I could sink my teeth into, right? Uh, I started, uh, I worked at a comic book shop for a while. That was like a really no brainer because they needed someone to help them out. And I was like, well, I need some cash. So I was, I was there for a while and it was like a small mom and pop store. So it wasn't too bad, but I helped, like I reorganized their entire cataloging system. Like I showed them how to start like selling stuff online. Like I did all of this stuff, like it was really basic, basic stuff. Nothing that required a lot of like knowledge about working systems, but it was just the way they were thinking about doing it. It was just too redundant. And I'm like, you are just wasting so much time here. I did that for a little bit. And then one of my fraternity brothers in Rochester wanted to start up a t-shirt company, like a screen printing t-shirt company. So he got a connect out in Long Island who was able to do all the printing. So we could take in the orders, send the stuff to this guy, print out the shirts, that guy would ship it out. So we didn't really have to do anything. We were just kind of like the middleman but we were still able to get cheaper prices than most of our competitors. I wanted to lean into that aspect of it because I figured, hey, if we can just go and find universities or companies that are looking for single color screens, like the cheaper, the better, then I don't have to worry about keeping uh, getting repeat customers for this, right? So like things uh, at MIT, what they would do at spring semester is that they would give out t-shirts for your major that you picked. So mechanical engineering, we get a particular major, course nine, course 10, whatever. That's just one school and that's like 22 majors. So then I started reaching out to colleges in the Boston area. It's like, hey, I went to MIT, yada, yada, yada. Let's do this. So I would get every spring semester a ridiculous number of orders that would come in. And my partner, who would he would still try to do the whole like fashion kind of thing. So he was trying to like make really intricate designs and stuff and like do a limited run. And I wouldn't get any sales until like spring semester. And so he'd be on me like, you need to do sales, you need to come up, you have a quota, yada, yada, yada. And like within the next week, I would get like all of these sales coming in. And there would just be this look of bewilderment on his face. Like, how the hell did you do this? And I'm like, I am not trying to do what you're doing. I'm just selling toilet paper. Because I don't care enough about what I'm doing right now. So I need to make sure that I can just deliver, make my money, and then not have to stress about it. So he started making me do customer service because I wasn't really doing anything for the rest of the year. Whenever we would ship out like uh, t-shirts or hoodies for like smaller orders, because we would be targeting the the Greek scene. So like fraternities and sororities. I would be the guy on the other end of the phone when somebody would call up and say like, hey, where's my shirt? Where's my order? We didn't get it in time or we're probably not going to get it in time. Like what's going on? I was doing all the customer facing, customer service type of functionality at that business. We did 
pretty well for a while, but I just, it got to a point where I hated it. Like I hated doing what I was doing. It didn't resonate with me. I wasn't really talking to a lot of people. I was kind of just like living, shutting in. I was, I was, I was doing uh, remote working. We would only go out for like, like step teams or things like that, step shows, things like that, or fraternity and sorority related events. And it was like, as I was getting older, I'm like, this really isn't my scene anymore. So I wanted to remove myself, but I had no options of what to do. And that led me to, I was uh, working out at this time. So I'd lost a lot of the weight that I gained in college. Right. And I remember that I wanted to learn martial arts. I found a teacher. This is important because I met with an old friend of mine. He went to the dance studio that I used to go to. So I, I, I was a salsa dancer. I've been doing that the longest. Right. And I visited my friend at my old dance studio and he introduced me to this guy who taught Chinese martial arts. And he said, you have really fast feet. Have you ever thought about fighting? And I'm like, who are you? <laughs> Get away from me. <laughs> Whatever. So the guy said, hey, come and take a class with me. It's on me on, on a Friday night. So I went in there. I was the only guy in the class. And he was showing me some like weird body motions or whatever. And I'm like, this doesn't look legit. And I remember thinking, can you actually use this in a fight? And, and then I remember like his face got super serious. And he was like, yeah, you want to try me? And I wasn't like, this is like something out of a movie, right? I was like, for real? He's like, yeah, go for it. So I gave it the good old college try. And I lunged at him like I was trying to tackle him. And I just remember feeling like I was in a washing machine and it put me on the floor. And I looked up at him and, you know, as a New Yorker, I looked at this dude and I was like, can you do that again? Not really being disrespectful, but being a little disrespectful. <laughs> so then I did it again and the same thing happened. I ended up on the floor and that's when I was like, all right, I'm going to learn from this guy. And then somewhere a couple of months in, he told me, hey, why don't you go be a personal trainer? You can make a little bit extra cash on the side and then you can keep training this stuff with me and, and the rest of the students. That's how I got into the industry. I didn't really want to be a trainer because the way I, I looked at it, like trainers were people that failed at everything else. And at this point, it was kind of like matching my journey in life, right? Like I had so much potential and then like, what are you doing working at a gym? Uh, that's where I took my first job at New York Sports Club up on 115th Street. I did well at that location, but there wasn't a lot of money that people weren't really doing training packages. I remember my first session when I finished, all of the trainers had already circled around in the managers, like, and even some of the salespeople had come down and I kind of looked up and I saw this crowd of people around me after I finished my first session. And I was like, what's going on? And one of the veteran trainers walked up to me and he said, yo, how long you been training people for? And I said, this is my first session. And he said, you sound like you've been doing this for years. And it was interesting at that point because I had never really thought about it. Like I had gone from 210 pounds to 150 pounds. I was reading things about Eric Cressy, Tony Gentlecore, Mike Reinald. I was learning about things like the Postural Restoration Institute. This was before I became a trainer. This was just me trying to like, well, how do I not injure myself? Because I know a lot of people throw out their backs doing deadlifts. So a lot of this stuff was just me coming in and saying, how do I not screw myself up? I switched out of that location pretty quickly. We, one of my, that same guy that asked me that question was actually assaulted as he was closing up the gym one day. And I said, this is not safe. Like, this is not a safe place for me to be at. Like, he was a big dude. I'm like, I'm not, I'm nowhere near this guy's build. And I said, all right, I need to get out of here. One of the trainers said he had a connection at a crunch down in Midtown, like on 38th Street. So I went down there. I applied. I got the job really quick. Like the turnaround was, was really fast. And I thought, hey, maybe I can learn something here. That's what really started my, my serious, more serious career as being a personal trainer, because that's when I started learning a little bit more about the business aspect of things. It was just your reading of the body that made you so good during the first session. It was a lot of different things. When I was still at MIT for my last summer session, I ran into a guy in my Calc 2 class. 
he was good at math. Like, remember, my background in math wasn't so hot. So math wasn't my best subject. And he said, hey, dude, how about I help you with math and you be my workout buddy? He was like a former like teen Iowa state champion. So this guy knew what he was doing. And I'm like, wait, you want you want to help me with my math? And then you're also going to help me with working out because I was I was like 210 at this point. Right. Getting out of out of bed was a problem. And so he said, sure. So we did like a three day split Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I remember my first day was like April 24, 2005. And we were doing it was chest. It was uh, shoulders and arms. And I remember I was dead by the end of it. We went through a couple of months of working out before he got sunburned and he stopped, but I continued. So that was my first bug into, into, into weightlifting. And that's when I started learning about all this stuff. But I think it really came down to two things. I was already dancing at this point. So I had a very good dance instructor who showed me how to stack skills. And then my martial arts teacher also showed me how to stack skills. So it was like, you have no business doing Y if you can't do X. This is something that's not really taught in the fitness industry. There's there's no real sense of progression. There's the illusion of progression because they say like once you can do this with this amount of weight, then you can do do it with more weight. Like that's how most trainers understand progression. That's it. There is no real gravitas when teaching people new skills. And for martial arts, you can't teach a new skill until you've mastered the prerequisite basics. Like I'm not going to show you how to throw somebody if you don't know how to fall with dance. I am not going to show you how to do a, a complicated turn pattern unless you know how to manage the relationship between you and your partner, manage the space. Can you listen to the music? Because if you're going to spin someone and you're off count, what does it matter? These concepts are not really shown or talked about or taught in the fitness industry. I think that's what gave me a significant advantage over everybody else is because I was able to discern when somebody was at their limit and pull them, walk them right up to the edge, what we call now the neurological edge and not push them over. And then I talk to people, I ask them like, hey, how are you doing? Because most of the people that come into a gym, most people that hire a trainer, they don't know what they're doing. They acknowledge that they don't know what they're doing and they're asking for help. So my job is to make it a safe environment for them. That was always my MO. Can you feel comfortable and safe in this? Like if you can't do Y, I'm not going to push you to do Y. I'm going to push you to do X until you get really, really good at X so that the jump to Y isn't so big. You mentioned that you learned the business side when you went to Crunch. Can you elaborate on that more? In the beginning, like at New York Sports Club, there was no guidance other than just get more sales. Like that was the entirety of the advice that I got. It was like, get more sales. And in Crunch, I remember my first fitness manager because we went through a bunch of them. If you know anything about the fitness industry, a trainer will last longer at a location than their fitness manager. They cycle them out, whether they're good or bad. So I remember with Ed, and he would always call me like, in the beginning, he would call me Mejor. So that was a nickname that these guys found out about me from my frat days, because I was in a fraternity at MIT. They would call me Mejor, or he would call me Gonzalez. And he would always come over and be like, hey, listen, like, what's your schedule like? So he would walk me through my schedule. He would tell me how to approach people. He would tell me, you have to be malleable in terms of your scheduling. You have to be able to work with, you know, some people are going to get called into a meeting last minute. They may have to reschedule stuff because most of my clients were either early in the morning, like at 5.30 or at 5 p.m., 5.30 in the evening, like after work. And we were in Midtown. So that's where most of our clients were. Like not a lot of people lived in that area. It's the reason why we were the only crunch that closed on Sundays. Like no other crunch in the city is closed on Sundays. We're closed on Sundays. We close early on Saturdays. Even Friday nights, we close early. We were working with a limited schedule with respect to the clubs and in, in, in terms of hitting goals. A lot of it was just saying, this is how you reach out to people. This is how you get new business. You can't just stay here. You can't just like come and go when you have sessions. Like you have to live in the gym because people have to see what you're doing. Clean the equipment, wipe down the machines, put the weights away. Like let people know that you're taking yourself seriously. 
And like, that's why we have a uniform. That's why you have like your uniform needs to be clean. You need to shave or do whatever to keep yourself looking neat. And that was the big thing. So it says like a lot of people, they don't know how to be professional. They show up late and that kills their renewal rates. All of these things that no one thinks about. You think of a trainer like, oh, he's just showing you how to work out. Yeah, yeah. People that just like to work out and then switch to becoming a trainer, they just like to work out and they want an excuse to keep doing it. So it's kind of just them being lazy in a sense. Being a personal trainer, being a good personal trainer is a job. You have to be a professional when you show up from day one. I think in the last 10 years that I've been doing this, I've been late to exactly two sessions, one at New York Sports Club, and then another one, uh, I was actually stuck underground on the train heading down to to my location. And I think they were both combined. I was five minutes late. It spoke volumes about people like when I was showing, like when I showed up late to those two sessions, both of my clients were like, hey, is everything okay? (laughs) That's how out of character that was for me. Those were some of the things that my first fitness manager spoke to me about because I had no context for this stuff. Like I didn't, I never held down a, a stereotypical nine to five job. So I needed more guidance in that arena. Like I was more educated when I walked into that crunch in terms of like biomechanics and things about the body than every single trainer there. They had more experience. They, they knew more about working with people, but I walked in green having more of a background in education. Okay. Did you have any certifications or how does that work? Yes and no. So in New York Sports Club, when I walked in and I applied for a job, I didn't have a personal training certification. They said that you can go and as long as you get certified within 90 days, you're fine. So there are places where like if there's an an in-person workshop, you can go study for the workshop, go to the workshop, take the test at the end of that workshop, and then you'll get your score within a week or two. There was one such workshop in New York City. It was during that 90 days. And New York Sports Club would, would subsidize some of that. So I went out there and then I got my CPR AED certification because you need that. And that's pretty much all you need to start working. But I know trainers that don't have a certification, like they'll walk in or, or they'll apply. And as long as you can get something within those first 90 days, you're fine. Some locations stop allowing you to do that. Some of them are saying that you need specific certifications, like they'll take ACE, they'll take Nesto, they'll take NASM. And these are just like governing bodies, right? But as long as you have one of these things, you're in. Now, the funny thing about that is that most of these certifications are actually worthless. So you'll hear the stories about personal trainers that will, they get a weekend cert. Technically, my cert, the cert that that's like my baseline is a weekend cert. Like you can go in, take the test and that's it. But there is no certification out there that's really all that meaningful. Like if you say, if, if you're a trainer and you, you're just like, oh, I'm a, I'm a NASM or I'm a CSCS or I'm this or I'm that. And they say it like they're proud. They have, I have no confidence in that coach at all. I care about how are they looking at the human body? How are they looking at the neurological implications of what's going on? How are they in terms of dealing with people? Like, are do they exhibit sociopathic tendencies when they're conversing with someone else? Are they egotistical? Are they narcissistic? You're going to find a lot of that in personal trainers or even in physical therapists as well. Now, how'd you get down this road? So you're at Crunch, right? What's your road like look after that? So you learned the business aspect. How'd your career change once you learned the business aspect? At this point, I was still playing it as a serious hobby. Like I wasn't fully committed into saying, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Because as I said before, you've heard my history. I was bouncing around a lot. I didn't have a lot of direction. And I think that there was this seminar. Backtrack a little bit. In martial arts, depending on what martial art you do, lineage is very important. The question comes around, well, who taught you or who was your teacher? As a wrestling background that you have, like you can relate to some of this stuff. Like, did you learn from the actual teacher or did you learn from one of the senior students? Because it makes a big difference. For me, I always cared about where did my information come from? I always cared about that. And fast forward to Crunch, 
there was a workshop being offered at my location. And it was a free workshop for all the crunch trainers there on kettlebells. And it was like KBC or something like that. Now, I had been reading about this one coach named Dan John. Dan John in the strength and conditioning world is a legend. This guy has forgotten more about coaching than most of us will ever learn. He's based out in in Salt Lake City in Utah. So he was doing a kettlebell workshop in, I think, in Los Angeles or San Francisco or San Diego, one of one of the California cities. And it was the same weekend. It was a one day course. And I think it was like five hundred dollars. I had seen enough posts saying, if you ever have the opportunity to learn from Dan, do it. It doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter what he's teaching. If you have the opportunity to learn from this guy, do it. I flew out to the seminar. I think I got there like four or five minutes late because I didn't know how to get there. I was like, wow, this is, this guy is legit. When you talk about professional, this guy's a professional. I went through the entire workshop. I almost failed it actually. Like he, he wouldn't let you go keep going until you actually successfully completed all the tasks. And I was like, Oh my God, like I have to listen to more about this guy. Like I don't know who this, who this guy really was until I went here. And then there was another seminar that happened shortly thereafter. And Dan was the entire second day. But I was listening to all these guys talking on the first day and they were talking about breathing mechanics, sympathetic, parasympathetic. Like they were using all these words that I had heard about before, but I wasn't really fully familiar with them. Just looking at these guys, they were like these people in their late forties and their fifties, some people that look more like scientists and strength coaches. And I was listening to these people talking. I'm like, what is this? Like, am I in a strength and conditioning seminar or is this like, I thought it was just gonna be some jack dudes telling me how to deadlift better. And these guys were going ham into the science. And I said, I don't know what this is, but I need to find out more about this stuff. And that's when I started really digging in. And I would, any continuing education, education, book, video, online seminar, or in-person seminar that I could get my hands on, I would go. I dropped so much cash that year on continuing education. It was silly. As much knowledge as I had walking in the, the, the front door to crunch, by the time I, I had left, I was, I was starting to assist at seminars in New York City for particular educational courses. Wow. How much were you, if you don't mind me asking, how much were you sort of making or how much would someone of your level would make at that time with your level of knowledge? So it really depends. The reason why is that crunch, you would have tiers. So there'd be a level one, level two, level three, elite and master trainer. You could be a master trainer and you could charge level one pricing, but then you would only get level one cuts. A master level trainer could train any level below and people would do it because people's financial considerations or what have you. So it really came down to how good were you at owning your price? And then how good was your support team? Because we had these little cards like breaking down pricing. When trainers would lose those cards and they would get floated around the gym floor, members would see the pricing because usually it's like, what's the price? Well, this is the price. And then you see, but I saw another car that had lower pricing and you're like, yeah, that's for level one trainers. So then that would just create a lot of contention uh, when people that are trying to buy stuff. If you were stuck at level one, you were making peanuts and you were struggling to survive. What is level one? How much are they charging the people and what's the cut? I think back when I was doing it, it was like 77 bucks for a session and you were getting maybe 20 to 22 bucks out of that. So is that typical? 33% of the rate is what you get? If you're at level one, yeah. Okay. So how does it change among the levels? So level two, I think got 26. Level three got 33. Elite got, I think, 40. And then I think you were getting 50 to 55 at master. So that's per session. How much were the rates at master? So 50 to 65. I think the master was 150 because I remember I left at elite level. 
So I was charging 135 and I think I was doing a mix of level threes and elites. Okay. Typically it's like 30 to 50% is the typical cut for most gyms, right? Oh, you're not getting 50%. You're never getting 50%. You never forget. Okay. I guess like 40 is the upper end. No, you're getting like dollars. Like this isn't percentage. This is dollars per session. No, no, I get that. I'm saying it would be 30 to 40% of the... I would say you would tap at like 30 to 33% tops. And that's common. This is like a standard for most gyms. No, most gyms would make much less. Like crunch trainers are known for making more money than their counterparts at Equinox. Oh, I see. I see. So at Equinox, you're not going to get any commission on your sales. So we would also get 10% commission on packages. Equinox, you just get a percentage based on like what tier you are, like tier one, two, three. I think there's a tier X and I'm not sure how that breaks down in that company, but it would come down to what you were able to sell. And for us, we had, they gave us more ownership of how we figured that out. So we were responsible for getting our own clients and everything like that. I was lucky and I was different in the context that I didn't prospect that much because I walked in and I knew how to deal with people that had like old knee issues or lower back issues. Whenever someone came in with an issue, they immediately gave them to me. I didn't have to go prospect as much because they knew that I could keep that person. Most of my clients only left when either they got fired or they moved out of the city. Oh, okay, okay. So you were able to really differentiate so by specializing in something that the other people were not as good at. That made things a lot easier for you. Yeah, the managers were even, it got to a point where my fitness manager, so there's a fitness manager and the general manager of the club. My fitness manager called me down one day and he said, Gonzalez, this is when I was starting to get on his nerves. Gonzalez, you need to go up and you need to give me five KOs, like book five KOs, kickoffs or like intro sessions. I need five KOs, five numbers, and you need them by the end of the day. Otherwise, I will stop feeding you clients. And then I got scared because I'm like, I need money. So I ran back upstairs and I started like looking for people. He did this on a Friday. So there was nobody in the gym after like one o'clock. So there was nobody there. Like I couldn't come down until, until the gym closed. And then I got a call from the manager and the manager called me down. This woman, I'll never forget her, Sandy Nelson. She just bought, I think, 30 or 50 sessions. And she bought a point of sale. So she joined the gym and she said, like, this is, she'll pay for the sessions. And he said, you have a new client, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 5.30 in the morning. If you have anyone at 5.30 in the morning, you need to bump them and move them over to make room for this lady. They could go and tell you, like, here's a new person. They need this time slot. Make it work. So that's what Ed was kind of helping me way out way back in the beginning. I grabbed the number. I was like, thanks. And then I walked away. But my fitness manager was right there. And he was like, you know, the meme that goes around is like, what am I, a joke to you? The general manager looked at him and then he looked at me and he said, honestly, come on, who else are we going to give her to? And it was that at that point that I realized just how different I was and how invaluable I was to that specific location because I could do something that nobody else could do. And that actually went against something else that Ed told me maybe about a month or two ago because he knew that I knew that I was smart. He knew that I knew that I had specific skill set, but he didn't want me to get too egotistical. So he told me, don't ever for one moment think that you are irreplaceable. And then this little exchange with me and the general manager, I was like, well, I think that just kind of like pops the bubble on that theory. Yeah. So when did you sort of leave Crunch? What were your next steps after Crunch? I had a mentor at the time who was trying to open up a gym maybe two, three blocks away. So I was planning to exit Crunch when they got their lease for their new space. The problem was that that deal fell through. Like their real estate investor or what have you called them up like right after they had signed the contracts or right after they had made the pay. Something something was already done. Everything fell through. So somebody else offered cash 
on the spot and they lost the location. So for a year after Crunch, I was bouncing around trying to figure out where I was training people. Eventually found a spot in Midtown called Mid City Gym. And I was there for a while and some people stayed, but like it was a really dingy spot. It didn't match the clientele that I was bringing. When my mentor finally opened up her doors, at that time, I had dwindled down from my roster when I left. And then I was there for about a year, a little bit over a year and a half. I was sold on the concept that these people were going to be like world-class trainers and they're going to be like on top of their game. And I went in like kind of like the same way where I walked into Crunch. I was like, hey, I'm going to learn from all these people. This is going to be great. And the more that I observed, the more I was like, this isn't it. This is not it. Why am I constantly going to places where I'm the smartest person in the room? And that didn't sit well with me. It was around this time where I had left my original martial arts studio. I started picking up Muay Thai. That's when I had my hip injury. I blew up my right hip. I was trading roundhouse kicks with my sparring partner. I hurt up in my hip. And when my right leg touched the ground again, I fell to the ground. I couldn't stand. My sparring partner was another trainer that I had known, and we had gone to a lot of the same courses. He cued me on a few drills to help me get back on my feet so I could wobble out of the gym. But I knew it was something was off. I went to go see my two mentors at the time. Both of them assessed me, gave me very similar drills and said I'd be fine. And that was not true. During the span of a year, I lived with constant hip pain. The pain was to the point that I developed insomnia because I couldn't sleep at night. Put on 40 pounds. My patient, I was very irritable. So my patients went all the way down. I lost some clients because of that, because of how I was managing it. I went to see eight different specialists and clinicians over that time frame. I got imaging done, came back negative. Nobody knew what was going on. I saw PTs, chiros, acupuncturists. I saw a shaman that spit holy water on me. I had seen everybody and no one had an answer. One of the people that agreed to kind of help me was the owner of that gym. Nothing got better. I made a decision somewhere around this time frame and I said, you guys don't have the answers. I don't know where the answers are, but they're not here. I'm going to go out and I'm going to look for these answers somewhere else. Because if I'm just going to stay here, I'm going to just, I'm going to remain at where I'm at. And that's not okay. After a few months, I met up with a trainer through a mutual friend. We got on a three-way call, this one guy in Boston, myself, and this guy out in Queens. And me and the guy from Queens said, hey, let's link up. Let's, let's hang out. And so we did. And a few months later, you met this guy. And he's a little rough around the edges. You knew that if you gave him five or six months, he was going to change everything. When I was first taking certain courses from this educational institution, after three months, I was still trying to figure stuff out. Like I didn't know what my right hand was from my left hand when I was taking courses from this institute. When he was three months in, I think he had already taken seven courses. What he had, his ability to master information was insane. This was the guy eventually, like I saw him training one of my best friends and I was like, that's interesting. I've never seen anyone do that before. And I've been around, like I've gone to all these seminars. I've visited a bunch of gyms. Like I'd seen a lot of people. Like I knew who was worth knowing in the industry on a national level. And I had never seen anyone do stuff like this. And I was like, all right, cool. So we were both waiting for our clients at my, at my new independent gym. And I said, Hey Mike, can you show me the thing that you were doing with Kento? And he's like, sure dude, put me on a massage table. He assessed me where I was at. He got me on the floor with my feet up against the wall. And then he had me shift my bones so that my inner thigh started cramping. He positioned my arm and my torso. My neck was deviated, my tongue, jaw, all this stuff was being taken into account. And then he said, all right, cool. Now breathe and don't die. I think I got three or four breaths and I was exhausted. He's like, all right, cool. Get up and walk around. 
The moment I got up, I immediately felt a difference. My hip felt loose. Not loose and it was like wobbly, but like it felt there was like there was no restriction. You know, something is like it feels off and so things tighten up. It felt the opposite of that. When I got up, I felt very light in my body, like heavy in my heels, but light in my body. And the four walls of the room looked like they had gotten pushed back further apart. And as I walked around, it was like I had never walked before that moment. Like I had never experienced what walking really was like. And then I walked and it was like a really surreal experience. And then I looked back at him and he kind of just had this like little smile on his face. And I looked at him and I said, what was that? What's going on? And he looked at me and he just smiled and said, neuroscience. He was like, do you feel better? I was like, yeah. I was like, cool. And he just walked away. And I was like, no, 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 no. Come back here. So I dragged this six foot tall former Marine back and I said, can you teach me how to do that? Like, what, what, what was that? And he's like, he stooped down, looked me in the eye. And with this really deadpan face, he said, well, how good do you want to be? I couldn't even process the severity of that statement. I thought he was just kind of like pulling my leg. And I just kind of like, shut the F up. And can you teach me? And he's like, yeah. He pulls out a textbook from his book back and it's called Principles of Neuroscience. So this is a heavy book. Dumps it on my lap and he says, get to work. I think I was reading like maybe I got like 150 pages into that textbook before he said, hey, How's that book going? I'm like, this is the most dense thing I've ever read. Good. Here. Throws me another book by Latash on motor control. And it's like clockwork. Every two weeks, he throws me another book. He's like, hey, dude, I just read this. Here, you need to read this. Uh, there's this book by the cerebellum by this guy, Ito. It is the most dense book I have ever read. I still cry when I think about what that book made me feel like because the subject matter was so dense. It took me three months to get my hands on a copy of that book because I wanted a physical copy. Nobody was selling it. I eventually caved and I started buying stuff on my Kindle. This guy took me down the rabbit hole of cognitive neuroscience, motor control, the memory system, osteokinematics, like how the bones move with respect to one another, emotional regulation, psychoanalysis. Like there was no stone left unturned. If it had any influence on how the brain predicts and creates movement patterns, he was all over it. And then a short while later, he made us get all over it. So he had two students from this whole situation. His first student, Kento, who I briefly mentioned, and myself, because we were the only ones who were willing to do the work. What we were doing flew in the face of what the fitness industry is known for, what physical therapists are doing to combat a lot of movement dysfunction. And we're, we're just kind of in our own little world now. The reason that I know that this was so important was because nobody else had figured out how to help my hip. And this guy did it in six minutes. It's kind of like that one guy that comes in, like everyone's trying to figure out how to solve this crazy math equation. And then like this little six-year-old girl walks in and then she like draws on the chalkboard and like gets all the equations right. And then she walks out and they're like, wait, who was that? <laughs> like, that's what it felt like. It's like, whatever this guy was doing was monumental. He's a new guy in the fitness industry at the time, relatively new. Nobody knew who the hell he was. Like people ask him, oh, who's your mentor? They're like, Mike Zhao. And they're like, who the hell is that? I'm like, exactly. <laughs> Nobody knew who this guy was. I was following pretty big dudes in the industry. Like I was mentoring under some other people or I was mentoring under some other people. And I had a choice in that moment. I said, all right, am I going to follow this relatively unknown person who was able to help me and who like he knew the subject matter he was talking about? Or am I going to go on people that are more well-known, more established, have more street cred and keep getting what I was getting before? I understood the depth of that decision that I was making there. And I'm like, dude, and my hip has never felt this good even before.
I made that decision. I say like, all right, whatever this guy does, I'm all in. I will drop everything else that I've ever learned and I'm just going to follow this dude. How long ago was that? That was about three and a half, almost four years ago. Okay. So now this changed your approach to training. What do you start focusing on now in terms of what, right? Because you definitely moved away from, hey, I want to get stronger. I want to lose weight. So what do you start moving into now? It's a tricky thing. Well, let me talk about the transition, right? Because that's a little bit more, more and more important. He showed me a couple of like warm-up drills, let's say. Resets is what we call them. So you had to get your body in a certain position. You had to feel certain muscles working. And then you had to coordinate that with your breathing. All of this stuff required a lot of mental taxation. You're lucky if you're getting four or five breaths consecutively in this position. If you can do 10 breaths in any of these orientations, you're doing it wrong. You're just, you're not doing what you need to be doing. Because it's so detailed to get people just to set up into the position, doing it right for first time exposure could take anywhere between 15 to 45 minutes. As a fitness guy, you can start to see a potential problem here. We're doing 45 minutes of this hour long time and we're just getting you to breathe and feel certain things. And like, well, where's my workout? For the first year and a half to two years, I was trying to marry these two things of still being the fitness guy and then having access to this incredible software, as it were. Sometimes people get pissed off because they spent so much time doing the resets that there was no real time to work out. Sometimes I said like, well, I know this person doesn't want to do it. We'll just do the workout and not do the resets. But then something would happen with their knee or their shoulder or their lower back because now I was aware of what the signs were. It wasn't just them telling me, ow, it was me seeing this is a problem. And then we'd have to go back and do the drills anyway. And then it became a moment where I said, well, wait a minute, if these drills are teaching us something different in our body, should we still be training people the same way that we trained them before, like with a lunge or a squat or a deadlift? Don't, doesn't the definitions for what those exercises look like now has to change? And then I asked Mike this and he was like, oh, absolutely. Yeah, you can't do what you were doing before. That's what got you into this mess. And I was like, oh, no, because <laughs> I understood what that meant. I mean, everything had to change. Whatever your status quo, whatever your definition for normal was in terms of movement before was now thrown out the window. Because if you're just doing the resets, the warm up drills, and then you're still training the way you did it before, all you're doing is building up a tolerance to being at end range with the regular way that you train. You have to build up the skill of learning how to manage breathing and pressure and gravity. There's a new way of looking at the world and you have to use that lens for everything. Otherwise, you're putting a band-aid on things. At about two years ago now, I decided to make that full switch. I stopped calling myself a personal trainer. I initially called myself, what, a motor skills coach or a movement specialist. And then I think on LinkedIn is where I finally uh, settled down on the movement detective because a lot of what I do is troubleshooting. You don't come to me for a workout. You're doing maybe one or two exercises. And we're focusing on making sure that you feel what you need to feel and sense what you need to sense. And if you can't, then that's a much bigger issue than, hey, go do this one exercise really well. It's not about strength. It's about what the brain can perceive. It's about what level of emotional regulation a person has. Because let's say someone had trauma when they were very young. Something as simple as the parents never wanted to accept their need to draw stuff. Something very, very benign, right? Nothing that we would look at as terrible. Now you have someone that never got validation. Now you have someone that never felt safe in expressing themselves. That compromises their ability to sense their body later on in life. It's not that they don't know how to sense their body. It's that they were never, never given the infrastructure to be able to sense their body. So I made a, a recent post about why there's no such thing as perfect posture. It's because at any given moment, if I'm sitting down in this chair, if I'm standing up, if I'm laying down, whatever, gravity is always acting on me and I always have to breathe. 
So you could get into a good posture, but the moment you take a breath, your belly expands, your chest expands, your spine moves. If you don't have the skill to breathe efficiently, just breathing throws you off. And what if you're in a good position, but you can't sense the muscles that are keeping you there? Well, guess what? If your brain doesn't have access to those sensations, you're not in the position, neurologically speaking. You could be in the structural position that gives you good alignment, but if you can't sense it, if you can't manage pressure, if you can't breathe well, if you can't distribute forces well, because there's many ways to do to get into a certain posture, it doesn't matter. So it's, it's a, a constant struggle to manage all of these things. You could have the perfect ergonomic alignment for a bunch of different things, like sitting in your chair or doing whatever. But if you're not actively troubleshooting these positions, it's meaningless because you don't have agency. You're relying on other things to keep you in check. What are some mistakes that you feel like you made throughout your career? Let's stick to the top three or, you know, just general, and you kind of see it in personal trainers and, you know, that industry. Sure. I will say the, the number one mistake that I made, and I still remember this mistake, I was okay, but I wasn't good at dealing with the situation. When people would have emotional outbursts as what, 23 year old trainer, I was 23. Like I wasn't even 25. Like my, my prefrontal cortex wasn't fully formed and developed yet. So I didn't have a real strong sense of identity. I didn't know who I really was. When you have someone that is having an emotional outbreak, a lot of people are not equipped to deal with that situation. This is the reason why we have mental health professionals. But the biggest mistake or the biggest thing that a lot of trainers, coaches, clinicians are missing is that most of these people do not go see someone to help regulate their own internal stuff. People don't see a psychoanalyst. Because if you're there and you're sitting with someone and they have an emotional breakdown, and you don't have the ability to hold space for them in that time, you are causing more damage than not because now it's the same thing. You're not validating their emotional experience. Most trainers on the floor, when someone's breaking down, and I've seen this when I was at Crunch, they're kind of like, hey, hey, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. That is not supportive. That person is not going to feel safe in that environment anymore because you did not know how to provide the sense of, of safety, the sense of resonance with that person. And that's the thing. We think that personal training or movement coaching or all these things are just about movement, mechanics, strength building. It's not. It's about two individuals, a person who is asking for help, and then a provider or a trainer or a coach who was able to hold space for them. This is not about language. This is not about learning what to, how to say the right things. This is about honestly and authentically resolving your own BS so that you can provide that space for other people. Like there's no shortcut to this. You have to go and do the internal work. That's the biggest issue that I see. The second issue that I see is that people like to regurgitate information. So people will always hear like, hey, you need to like posture. People think sit up straight, squeeze your glutes, you know, core strength. These are just words now. They don't mean anything anymore. Because if you show me a picture of someone who's sitting up straight, I'm showing you someone who is putting unnecessary stress on their facet joints in their spinal column. I'm showing you someone that doesn't know how to breathe properly. So their stressors are a lot higher. I'm seeing somebody who's a center of pressure on their feet, on their toes, not their heels. So now they're working harder to resist falling because of gravity. It's We're regurgitating a lot of things and none of us really understand how these things really operate in conjunction with one another. Like we're only looking at like face value. The third thing that I see is uh, in the fitness industry as a whole is managers that don't understand or don't really care about the relationship between the trainer and the client. You'll have people like, we have to hit quotas. Yes, I understand this is a business of making money, but when you pressure people into making sales, 
you're doing what I've observed on LinkedIn, like, you know, it's taboo, like don't force your business card down somebody's throat. Try to help people create their own agency so that they're going to want to stick around for a lot longer. Because if you do right by someone else, they will never stop singing your praises. But with a lot of these managers do, and I've been the direct experience with this with my own managers, is that they're just trying to say, all right, when's the renewal? When's the renewal? When's the renewal? Well, this woman just bought 50 sessions two weeks ago. He's like, yeah, but that was last month. What are they doing this month? And I'm like, dude, you're out of your mind. This was the, the status quo across all gyms. It's whether it's Equinox, Crunch, or New York Sports Club, it doesn't matter. Last month is last month, this month is this month. And I get it from a business perspective, but you're missing the point. And this is why a lot of people express frustrations when they join gym memberships or when they get a personal trainer. Okay, okay. What are the types of trainers that you see succeed in the industry? Like you kind of see them and they're like, all right, you're doing the right things. Or what are the right things to do? Thank That's a much better question for me to answer. I see a handful of, of trainers. So like people that are looking more into the neuroscience of things, people that are not telling their clients to stretch their hamstrings, people that are looking into more of the psychology of what's going on. Taking a course in psychology in college or getting a master's in psychology is not the same thing as going to see a psychoanalyst. And I think it's the people that have been able to overcome their past trauma that have come to face it, come to engage with it and come out better for it on the other side. Those people make phenomenal coaches, trainers, clinicians, and even therapists. I think that's the biggest thing. It's because we think it's just a body practice. If you do enough volume in this way, if you eat the right things, everything will work out. That is not true. You have to be able to, as a clinician or as a coach, come to terms with yourself. That is the most important thing because if you can't do that, you cannot lead anyone else to get better, whether that's altering food habits, whether that's teaching them progressions for strength training. Because at the end of the day, why are you doing this? A lot of people say like, oh, I want to get healthier. That's not the reason why. Nobody does things for logical reasons. It's always emotional. You dig deeper. When you get to a certain point, when you keep asking that why, it's going to be a very emotional reason. Like I've had clients break down when they finally told me the why. And some of these were really sad stories. Abusive relationships, uh, either is like their ex-girlfriend, their ex-husband, guardians when they were growing up, people at their job, sexual harassment. You have so many of these reasons that are never talked about. Some people, yeah, they just want to go and lose a little bit of weight, but it's like there are other things at play here. There are always other things at play here. Now I know you do a lot of remote sessions. How is that common in the fitness industry or do you see it becoming more of a trend or what's your take on it's more of a trend now, I, given the, the current situation that we find ourselves in. I've been doing remote sessions for about three years now. I started off with people reaching out to me from Instagram, and I would do Zoom sessions with people in Singapore and Hong Kong. I am seeing it become more of a trend. I think that it's essential now because we're not essential workers. Gyms are a perfect breeding ground to, to spread of this disease. So you have to be able to adapt to the situation at hand. If you're a trainer that's doing mostly like fitness stuff, you have several options. You could do lives, you could do Zoom group workouts, you can provide premium content for your existing clients. That's one of those things like you can't just sit on your ass and do nothing because your gym is closed. Figure it out. Uh, now that also depends is are you an independent contractor? Like are you out by yourself with no gym affiliation? Do you work at Crunch? Do you work at Equinox? Because then you have people that bought sessions they have to go through the gym in order for you to get paid. So they're in a little bit of a trickier spot. Providing content, helping the people that are already working with you in order to continue with their progress. 
That's a big thing right now. For people like myself, I can't do classes. The work that I do is highly specialized. There's only like three of us in the world that do what I do. So I have to provide greater context for what people are doing now. Like I have to relate more of my content to what to what people are experiencing. Like you're stuck at home. You don't have access to a lot of things. How are you going to deal with this lower back tension that you couldn't deal with three months ago? Well, now you're stuck at home and you have nothing else to do. Or people start up new routines, new habits. Like I know more people are running now. Great. But if you've never ran before, you might get things like shin splints or knee issues or lower back issues. Well, we have to provide context for why you're getting that stuff. We no longer have the luxury of going to work, going to a bar, eating out with friends, doing all these things in order to distract us from the issues that we that were never addressed in the first place. What are the next steps for you? Well, I finally cleaned out my apartment enough to give me some space. You know, as a New Yorker, we, we don't have a lot of room. I have some space now where I can go and film things from within my apartment. I do have a couple of kettlebells here that I will be using for my own workouts, but I'm going to assume that people don't have access to a lot of this stuff. And I'm going to start refilming all of my old content within the context of my of my bedroom so that people can say like, hey, this guy, oh yeah, but this guy has access to a gym, his videos in a gym, we don't have weights. I'm like, yeah, well, I'm taking that out of the equation. You don't need weights. If you have a bench or a chair or something like that, maybe like a Coke bottle or a heavy textbook, that's all you need. In terms of feeling better, I'm not the guy that's going to help you lose 30 pounds. That's not me anymore. But if you got something that's been bothering you, that's a very different thing. And you don't need a lot of equipment to address those kinds of issues. Yeah, you're the guy to reach out. Anytime I have, I stop stretching my neck. How does that feel now? Yeah, I mean, I kind of do this, right? This is okay, right? Going up and down? Well, we're doing the audio only version, right? So I would say this. Don't try to hike up your neck so much. Just like as you're standing, get all of your weight, like feel your ribs stacked on top of your hips. So that's going to maybe put your ribs a little bit further back. You may be thinking that you're going to fall. And from there, just rotate your head slowly to the left. And you're going to rotate your head to the left. You should feel a muscle kicking in on the right side of your neck the more you rotate. So as you rotate, don't try to hike up any of your shoulders. Just keep going. You should eventually feel this uh, right neck muscle kicking in to help you with that rotation. And then come back to the center. And then go the opposite direction, being mindful not to move your shoulders around to try to cheat. And then you should feel that left muscle kicking in as you rotate to the right. You're working on feeling that muscle more as you rotate to each side. That's a good way for you to move your neck around and figure out why you may feel tightness in the neck. Also, if you're staring at the screen all day because we're on Zoom a lot more nowadays, it would be a good idea for you to get a pair of blue blockers like Felix Gray's or just get up and lie down in a dark room or with an eye mask. And just don't allow light to enter your field of vision. Like if you close your eyes right now, I have two lights in front of me as I'm here talking to you. That light is still permeating the skin of my eyelids. That's why you want an eye mask or be in a completely dark room and just close your eyes for like three three to five minutes. That's all you need to slow down the effects of that. Because if you fire up your visual system too much, that's going to automatically fire up uh, muscles in your neck and upper back. It's not just the posture. It's you're using your eyes. And that's why this stuff gets gets torqued up. No, it makes sense. Body's very interesting. For the audience, Joseph is a guy. Any motor issues, he's the movement detective. So how would someone get in contact with you? How would someone follow up? You can either find me on LinkedIn. My URL is Joseph F. Gonzalez. And DM me there. You can shoot me an email, joe at M-E-J-O-R strength.com. And that's also my website, M-E-J-O-R strength.com. That's M as in Mary. Yeah, so mejor strength. Mejor right? strength, yeah. I get major sometimes. I got it from my Puerto Rican barber. He's like, hey, major strength. I'm like, dude, 
You speak Spanish. Really? What's wrong with you? Oh, man. Uh, that's such a disappointment. All right. Thank you so much for your time. I think the audience will gain a lot of value. Reach out to Joe if you have any sort of issues or problems you can't solve with your body. He's the detective that'll help you figure it out. Thank you so much for your time. You know, looking forward to seeing you again. Awesome. Thank you. Another great episode. Thank you for listening. Hopefully this information is valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No Degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think this show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash no degree. Any amount is appreciated and will go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at no degree podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash no degree INC. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect or follow me on LinkedIn at Janaid Iqbal spelled J-O-N-A-E-D last name I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, no degree, no problem. No degree.com. Yeah. So you got no degree. No problem. No problem. Any problem, we can solve them. We got this. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving. Growing and knowing. Wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. If you didn't know, now you know. Let's sing that again, everybody. No degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving. We're growing and knowing. The wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. No degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving. We're growing and knowing. The wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. Yeah.